Welcome to the Virtual Shift, a show looking at the seismic changes happening in healthcare with virtual care at the epicenter. Join me and my guests as we look at key cultural and policy shifts impacting how providers, payers, and patients connect, as well as how care is being reimagined both for today and the future. Hello, and thanks for tuning in today. I'm your host, Tom Foley. You can learn more about this show by visiting the program on healthcarenowradio.com, and be sure to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, at FoleyTom, and the hashtag, The Virtual Shift. Before I introduce my uh, great guest today, I want to uh, extend a heartfelt appreciation to uh, my audience and to the Healthcare Now radio station. For those that uh, may not have caught the news, last Monday, digitalhealthwire.com posted an article that was entitled 45 Best Digital Healthcare Newsletters, Influencers, and Podcasts for 2023. I didn't know this announcement was coming, so I'm sitting on the edge of my bed reading the uh, Digital Healthwire newsletter, and I'm reading the five uh, podcasts, and sure enough, the virtual shift was noted there. So you can imagine the excitement and the appreciation of having such recognition of being one of the top five healthcare podcasts. So I just want to thank the audience uh, for that. We do have a very large audience as podcasts go, 12,500 in healthcare on a monthly basis, so I appreciate that. And certainly to, to the radio station itself, Healthcare Now Radio, uh, Roberta Mullen and, and Carol Flagg, I just want to thank you for all of your uh, great support and the, and the great job that you do relative to putting the, together this program. So with that, let me turn to uh, my guest. My guest today is uh, Stephen Richardson. He is a entrepreneur and uh, subject matter expert in the creator of telemedicine programs. Stephen, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Thank you for having me. So very excited to have this conversation. There's obviously a lot going on in the transformation of care, and I'm not quite sure what the current state is, if you will, because there's so many open challenges that haven't been addressed while we're still in the throes of trying to transform the market. And given your subject matter expertise in building telemedicine programs, I, I thought it would be, uh, you would be a great guest. By, by the way, you're, this is the first episode in the new, in my third season. So I want to kick it off with some consultative approach to building telemedicine uh, programs. So thank you for joining. No, thank you. So the way I see it, you tell me if you see it differently, but you know, there are still a lot of challenges in the delivery of care mechanism. And I'll name a few. In today's world, after all the investment that we've done in healthcare from the High Tech Act and more, there are more chronic conditions today than there were yesterday. Uh, we still have access issues, we still have engagement issues, and we're still obviously not achieving the outcomes that we uh, are necessary to ultimately create that value-based care model as a ubiquitous expectation in the delivery of care. And then I'll add in uh, the, the challenge of co-pays. To me, I have always looked at uh, co-pays as one of the greatest inhibitors to care, specifically as it relates to those that are economically challenged but could still have equal access to care. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, th I mean, there's a lot to take back from that. I think, you know, starting from just the access and the engagement of where we are, that access uh, is still an issue um, with uh, the virtual care space. And, um, you know, through my uh, projects with a couple of companies, um, we 
we're looking at different ways to deliver that access. And I think, you know, we were looking at doing uh, mobile apps and that at the time, mobile apps was a, a huge industry. Everybody had a mobile app. If you didn't have one, uh, you were looked at that you were not a technology company. And through our time of development, we realized that a simple phone uh, IVR system through a couple of vendors was the right way. It uh, allowed better engagement for our customers and all ages of the customers. Um, the demographics we had were wide from pediatrics all the way to 80 to 90 year old customers. And everybody was able to use a phone line, very simple to gain access. So I think the, um, you know, on a product perspective is we should look at what is the easiest way for access and not always think that you need this shiny little new uh, mobile application out there and that the, the simplest uh, form of channel of communication could be the right way for those members. So looking at, you know, some other challenges of the market that um, I've experienced is really the, the access engagement, but also the, the data interoperability within different telemedicine, different, different healthcare systems in the payer. We often see that there's these virtual services out there. Uh, they're all very transactional and, but all that data that comes through there it might not go over to their virtual primary care or sorry, not virtual primary care, but their primary care might not reach the hospital and that you just have all these de this data stuck in everyone's system that somewhere it's, you know, could be beneficial to start plugging in to uh, different virtual companies to say, hey, you know, there's data that you have. Let's get into the right hands so that holistically the, their primary care doctor is able to see where that member went to. Uh, did they go to this service because they have it on their insurance card? Did they go to a very specific service to get types of meds? So, uh, you know, there's challenges, but there's also a lot of opportunity out there to be capitalized on. Yeah, the data interoperability is certainly uh, of great interest. Uh, one of my very first guests on the on the program spoke about the need for a national data network. And I think we're getting there with the development of the QHINs and alike, but I, I think that there's still a fundamental flaw in the interoperability. I do agree with the points that you made. You know, I come from New Jersey where I can go to New York, Philadelphia, and we're local in New Jersey for, for some great health care. And it's a three different uh, geographies, three different states, three different HIEs, uh, multiple EHRs. And the, the, the data just doesn't uh, exchange well, although there is direct messaging and you could you could do that exchange. but most folks don't use some of the features uh, part that were part of the meaningful use uh, program. But nonetheless, right. the point there being is the data interoperability itself is flawed in the context of it uses probabilistic matching. And so they can't always match the data where it gets uh, matched incorrectly. And the stats relative to the number of errors in healthcare on an annual basis is kind of reflective of the, some of the bad data that is still uh, lingering there. Uh, in my view, it's only when you get to a deterministic matching algorithm that you can have 100% confidence in the matching of the data. Now, I, I just came back from Hims. I spoke with someone, and they said it was nearly impossible. And I said, well, just imagine if your financial systems uh, weren't able to exactly match your financial records and you know your money, your money started going every place other than the place you wanted it to go, right? 
Yeah, it I is think possible. An opportunity. It is possible. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, so uh, and so that to me, data is the liquidity of healthcare, and the more data, the better the data, the better the liquidity, and the greater the providers have in assess gr- uh, better the uh, the current state of health for that uh, for that patient. Your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, and that and that be, and that being said, you know, giving that data to the providers, especially in a virtual world, is very important. It's not just the subjective data that comes over from uh, the member itself, but it's leveraging other tools and systems out there to get as much data so that they're able to make uh, more comprehensive uh, results or comprehensive uh, diagnoses on them, such as, you know, having plugins to, you know, a CVS or Exam1 or a Milliment is that you're able to pull some things back and have hey, you had medication from this, you know, three months ago, four months ago, but you didn't, you never mentioned it. So things like that will help them make uh, better and comprehensive. And that also plays a role into like managing care, chronic care management of seeing the history of these members throughout time and I, able to identify and say, hey, these are members that are not so healthy, but they didn't know it. They didn't have the access. They didn't go to the primary doctor. So that's also important of what type of data you're getting into the uh, forefront of the providers. Before we dive deeper in telemedicine programs, I thought it would be good if you, because everybody has a different definition, what, what is your definition of a telemedicine program? You know, there's lots of definitions, but mine is a, a program on the very high level is to give access to a member, to a provider, to make that connection uh, virtually, whether it's asynchronous, synchronous, phone, video at the highest level. And then you can start stripping away and getting uh, more granular into it of uh, specific types of programs and what is needed, you know, the chronic care management, virtual primary care, there's virtual medical home. So it hasn't really been quite defined. And I think, you know, that that might be regulatory that we're all just putting every single virtual program into one and call it telemedicine. It'll probably take time before we have different labels for uh, programs, but that's my view on uh, the word, the definition of telemedicine. And it's a good one, uh, but let's uh, let you and I settle on what the definition before we ask regulatory agencies to step in and uh, muck up the waters, please. So uh, yeah, I, I, I would agree. Oftentimes when I hear the word telemedicine, or te- uh, telehealth, it comes across as the video visit, right? Or asynchronous or synchronous a- a video visit. But I agree with what you added to the definition is that it's also inclusive of the virtual experience, inclusive of remote patient monitoring, remote therapeutic monitoring, chronic care management, allowing that patient to be wherever they want to be, but yet be able to engage in a rigorous and and structured uh, deliberative care model. I'm not a believer, as you might have uh, touched on, uh, that the brick and mortar is not the only place where care can be delivered. So telemedicine to me is really about a virtual care experience. And when we talk about interoperability and the sharing of data, the fact that a primary care provider or even a specialist is looking at that patient now under the microscope of remote patient monitoring or chronic care management, that data is now more real-time, if you will, you know, because the, all the episodic data that we have today from all the different EHRs are really episodic, right? Come see me in six months, and then, and then I'll, maybe I'll get another 
snippet of, of Steve's health record, right? Yep. Where chronic care management is a day-to-day and remote patient monitoring is a day-to-day engagement. So one, to your point, increase access. Now I'm also increasing engagement. And to me, one plus two uh, equals three, and that's outcomes. So to me, that that's the, the value of a virtual experience. Your thoughts? No, I agree. And, and adding that value, it takes time. I believe that we're only at the the top layer of the telemedicine and what we're delivering. You know, we have the tools, the chronic care management, the tools itself and the software, but it's the the practice, the art of practicing to develop these protocols. And and what I mean by that, it's like, how far can we go to treat you know, one disease uh, completely remotely? And I, I believe that's like the, the name of the game is if you can start stripping away and saying, I'm going to treat hypertension completely remotely, where the member is just going into physical locations to get, you know, an EKG or or renal ultrasound. That is the next step is that practice wise, it's going to have to be integrated with the textbooks, the schools when they're coming out is that you no longer are sitting in that office when you're going through medical school training, you're now sitting behind a computer, but your clinical protocols have to have to be different now. Uh, Your mind that you're, how are you going to get some data and managing it? It's going to be, it's going to be interesting. So I believe we touched the first layer and, and technology has allowed that. Now I believe it's time for the, the clinicians to go in, to go deep, to see what, what can you do? How much can you do it? And without the member going to see a brick and mortar. Yeah. So what are your thoughts with that in mind, building out that virtual uh, experience? And I am with you hundred percent on the, on building out the right protocols and, and, and really the right alignment with the, with the patient. So they act understand the expectations of their participation. If you ask a patient today, what value-based care? I'm not quite sure a patient can actually answer that question. But yeah, if I'm you, not even but sure if you, a provider can even answer that as well. That, that yeah. might be true. That might be true. But, you know, ask a patient uh, what their requirements are to take their vitals twice a day as, the, as they're asked to, or minimally from a regulatory perspective, 16 times as on 16 days in a 30-day period, and or what they're supposed to do from a chronic care management perspective, what's their assigned task versus the clinician's assigned task. You don't have to talk about value, but you're going to get the value because you're now part of the game plan, if you will. You're, you now have equal say in what you need to do, how you need to do it, and what what the expectations are. The point there being is I think it leads to a virtual first model in that, to your point, someone is able to ultimately embrace that virtual world and, and manage uh, a chronic condition virtually uh, more so than the need to go to a, a brick and mortar every six months for a measure. Your thoughts on the potential of what a virtual first model might bring to a transformed delivery of care model? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, the virtual first model, it, it's been around for quite some time. And I think there's been some good effort uh, put in by having access to certain virtual urgent care services. I believe that in order to be successful, to provide more value in this, we, again, have to go deeper with the tools that we have and to continue on the care of that member from the, the point of interaction. So the first time they call, the first time they activate it is we should be following their journey all the way through and just not dropping it off. So it takes all of the components that we just talked about to really make sure we have the data, we have the tools, we have the clinicians. It's, I mean, when I'm viewing this, it's a, it's a different model and a deli- different delivery uh, from the virtual first model all the way through. And it, it, it's quite interesting to see 
how each of the payers are going to collaborate with the software, uh, with the physicians, it's going to take a strong pull to get everyone aligned to see like why this model uh, will be successful. And that might be actually the, the outcome is needed to get to a valued-based care by having this model. You mentioned payers, a great uh, call out. What do you think the, the role of the payer should be in a transformed uh, delivery of care model versus what we have today? You know, I see their role as more of the making sure that the continuation of care is being done. Uh, since the payer should be accountable for that member of going through all the aspects and be the eyes on where they're going. They should be able to see the claims because they have visibility into that. Um, that's, that's one thing that, you know, telemedicine companies and patients, we all don't have the, the right transparency into what the claims, what's really happening behind the scenes. It makes it quite difficult for us to give that patient experience and to make sure that they're going to the right place at the right time through this delivery. But to say it, I think the, the payer should be more of accountable, kind of driving this, helping out each of these functions uh, to the better outcome for the patient. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I enrolled the payer first. The payer is the one that I selected for you know my insurance, and they tell me what doctors I should go to uh, in order for me to achieve my best ability to achieve wellness, right? So but every doctor is different. There's no consistency in what a uh, an Aetna doctor will deliver versus a United doctor versus a Cigna doctor, right? They still leave it all up to the doctor on whether or not they want to embrace telehealth or remote patient monitoring or chronic care management. So you still have this mishmash of uh, of services, and then you have those that skim off the top, if you will, you know, those telehealth virtual care platforms that are just uh, with no continuity of care, they're the episodic ones and maybe distracting from the overall opportunity on how a patient should have some greater stickiness with their virtual team, as opposed to just going to maybe a, your local drugstore that has a nurse practitioner that you can see uh, on a real quick, hey, I just need antibiotics and then let me get the heck out of here, right? Yep. And the same thing holds true with the virtual urgent care. Again, it's episodic. We, we both agree on that. I, my personal view that the payer needs to take uh, some more aggressive step in, hey, I'm your member. I'm a member of your plan. Please step in and help me get the value, if you will. Don't leave it for a provider where I need to, on average, national average, 26 days to wait for a, a visit. So a lot of people challenge that number, but that's what the stats say, right? You know, I took care of my father. I was involved with my father-in-law, my my mother who had cancer, my now my mother-in-law. I mean, if you're not an advocate, if they, a patient does not have an advocate for achieving the, the goals of the engagement, then you're in trouble. And even when you have an advocate, it's shocking. Uh, as to the level of care that people get in what is referred to as prominent healthcare systems. So what are your thoughts on the idea of patient advocacy as it relates to virtual care models and and how do we ultimately get to value? Yeah, so in regards to advocating uh, for the patients and to get the value and and having healthcare responsible, I, I see that we have to get to a level of understanding with the patients that becomes more localized and not so much nationalized and making it more personable. 
so that the the patients themselves are are developing those relationships with the physicians through the telemedicine much more differently than they're they're following now. I, I really believe, you know, personally that it's that relationship with the doctor that's going to hold them accountable on both ends, the physician and the patient. And I, I really believe bringing it to a local and a national uh, will help advocate for telemedicine usage. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, it's always encouraging when you hear uh, patients involved in remote patient monitoring and and you hear them uh, provide comments about their monitoring agent or their care manager who's looking at their vitals coming in and referring to them as angels because they have they're the ones truly on the front lines now uh, engaging the patient you know uh, you know 40 hours in a given month that's a lot longer than uh, what they normally have uh, have engaged uh, you know that's 40 minutes a month is like three uh, three three or four doctor visits right yeah. but it's more choppy if you will but quality choppy if you will you know the, so a minute today a minute tomorrow a, a, ch- a chat message uh, saying good good work in, for taking your vitals and it just uh, creates a whole different culture relative to the delivery of care the patient feels like someone actually cares and not being a, episodic and, and we have to put the patient at the center of this model otherwise it's not going to be successful your thoughts on uh, where the patient stands in the delivery of care model? I, I'm aligned aligns with, aligns with you. I, I think that we're not yet um, listening to them. I think there's too many cooks in the kitchen uh, that want to get in front of the patient. So that, that's affecting like the patient-centered uh, like medical home or just focusing on the patient. And uh, the providers are out there. They're listening, but they don't have enough leverage. They can't wave that flag enough to payers and um, other uh, large corporations to say, hey, this is what our, our members are saying, because it might not be beneficial uh, for the payer or these other companies, you know, but it, it also takes uh, the patients too as well to start standing up and advocating for themselves. Uh, so I think I see where the, the provider and the patient relationship waving that flag as hard as they can, uh, leveraging the tools, the technology. Uh, to get them in a better uh, position, that'd be fantastic if I could see that happen in the next, you know, my lifetime or the next five years. The sooner the uh, the better, in my view. Again, if we're going to get to the true value base, and I and I look at value base not necessarily the need to take on risk, but the value in a patient achieving the desired outcomes in a specified period of time value uh, comes in many different forms as a result of that. You don't need to take on risk to do that, uh, in my view. And uh, just a real quick word on that. I can adopt remote patient monitoring, chronic care management in a fee-for-service model and achieve value without taking on risk. Now, so I'm just not a, uh, maybe I'm too much of a cynic these days on what needs to be done in a delivery of care model and the unlikelihood that We'll get everybody aligned on a sing- single strategy. So uh, we just have a couple minutes. So I'd love to get your insights on a when you talk about cr- uh, creating a telemedicine program. What should the listeners walk away with? What are the top three to five elements they should have in every plan? You know, when you are creating a program, I think it's one most importantly to listen to your uh, clinical leaders. Uh, your clinical leaders are going to have their ear to the grind, and they're going to be the feedback of the thousands of patients they might have seen over the years of practicing uh, to give that feedback to product 
so that clinical and like product teams and technology teams are able to coexist and uh, work together for the better of the patient so that uh, the knowledge gap between um, those, the clinical teams and uh, product and engineering is, is less um, having the clinical uh, team on board. Two, uh, with programs is when you're developing programs, look at the, the cause and effect um, long-term wise. Um, is my program causing more gaps in care because we can't get the data to their primary care? Are we communicating with their primary care at all? Um, if not, think about that, what that's going to do for the patient and what it's going to do for the primary care community, that the physicians are standing there grinding it out day to day inside of an office, and then their patients are going elsewhere for different uh, care and services. We have to think about how to make those connections back uh, to the primary care doctor. Uh, what is my third? My third one is a, a continuity of care for members is very important of uh, just not giving them their medication and shipping it to them, uh, but to full uh, see it through uh, fully until the member's ailment is, is gone, because that is what will decrease uh, the rise in chronic care diseases, is if we continue the care for that members when we first see them. I agree. The average Medicare patient has five chronic conditions, sees nine different doctors. If only one doctor, is able to enroll a patient into remote patient monitoring and chronic care management. How do you coordinate that with the other eight doctors? That, to your point, uh, data sharing and continuity of care is very critical relative to uh, whether or not that patient ultimately is going to be successful. Uh, as they say, communication is the key to success. So we certainly need to do a lot more of that uh, in this market. With that, I, uh, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, some really great insights and hopefully we can have you on the program again uh, soon. Again, to the audience, uh, Steve Richardson, entrepreneur and uh, subject matter expert and consultant in the creation of telemedicine programs. Steve, uh, before we leave, uh, how can folks get in touch with you? Yeah, uh, you can go onto my uh, LinkedIn profile, uh, Stephen Richardson, um, and uh, shoot me a message and um, I'll be able to respond from there. Awesome, very good. Steve, thanks again for, uh, for a great discussion. I appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Tom. That's today's shift. I appreciate the audience taking the time to tune in. If you missed part of today's episode, you can tune back in at the healthcarenowradio.com at the same time, 11 a.m. or 7 p.m. Eastern throughout the week. And be sure to check out the program page at thevirtualshift.co. As well, remember to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter at FollyTom, and follow the show's hashtag, The Virtual Shift. I'm Tom Foley. Until the next shift.